Thanks, Lisa. Well, if you've been with us uh, for a little while here, you'll know that we've been preaching through the book of Philippians, um, and now we are, we're concluding that. Uh, it's been called the, the third best title of any sermon series ever by Eric, um, Give Him Heaven. So, um, <clears throat> so we're, we're concluding it, and Paul, uh, in, in typical fashion for him, uh, ends where he begins. Paul is, uh, this is the last section of the book that, that uh, we've been calling a joy-soaked thank you letter. And finally, at the very end of this joy-soaked thank you letter, Paul gets to the thank you part. So there's these last number of verses here that Paul finally um, fully engages with the gift that the Philippians have given. And in doing so, he hearkens back to the beginning of the book when he talks about um, the, his desire for the, them being uh, their growth in faith. He talks about uh, the purpose of all this is God's glory. And he goes on to, uh, to thank them for their tangible gift and the fellowship that is the, the, their sharing in troubles together. So Paul is, is kind of circling back to what he said. He's, he's uh, rehashing, but he's going a little deeper into, uh, into this, how he interacts with the gift that they've given him. I read an article this week on, um, I don't know, a thing. I guess there's technical language for this. A thing in an industry uh, now, a movement within kind of uh, industrial, uh, industrial plants called byproduct synergy. You familiar with this? It's a movement. It's, it's all over. It's, it's, uh, it's going to lots of different areas. The, here's what it is. Lots of different areas of the market. Here's what it is. Are you ready? One thing goes into the machine, right? Something comes out, and there's always a byproduct. So a lot of industries focus uh, inordinate attention to what they do with the byproduct, what they do with their trash. Okay, if they're going to make, you know, phones, then there's going to be scrap metal, there's going to be plastic, there's going to be other, uh, other things that they have to deal with uh, putting in a landfill or somehow, uh, somehow paying to get rid of. So this new thought is called byproduct synergy where they... Um, where they want to take the byproduct and see it as uh, something to be used for the company, okay, something to be remanufactured. So in, uh, for an example, um, a company called Chaparral Steel, I don't know how you pronounce that, looks French, I don't know, from Texas, which also doesn't fit. Um, okay, this is a steel recycler. They get scrap steel, they put it into their thing, and, and uh, out comes, right, their machine, out comes the product that they were originally going for, usable steel. But also they get this stuff called slag, which is what they can't use anymore. So for a long time, they were a steel company, recycling steel, making new usable steel, and dealing with this waste slag. But they discovered that they can take this waste slag and they partner with this other company called Texas Industries, way more fitting for someone in Texas, to make a product called Portland Cement, which is just cement mixed with this steel slag and it has 
some benefits, I'm told. I don't know. I'm not a cement industry guy. But what they've done is byproduct synergy. They took their waste and they made a new revenue stream for the company. One thing went in of some, you know, marketable value. Something else came out as two separate and valuable items. Make sense? Byproduct synergy. This is what Paul is going to talk about today. Paul was ahead of his time. And he's going to talk about that in terms of money. Or at least that's the the grid that I want to view what Paul says. This company, I forgot to mention this, the steel company had to say, uh, says about their process of discovering this. They said they had to stop thinking of themselves as a steel company, right? A company that, that has this steel thing and only does steel things. And they had to start thinking of themselves as a... Um, as an organization with certain amounts of resources, and then ask themselves, now, what do we do with these resources that we have? How can they best be used? So they had to change the way they consider themselves and what they own. And, and, uh, and in doing so, they created more value, not only for the company, but for the end user. All right, so Paul, back to the letter. Paul writes a very uncomfortable thank you note. If you look at this, uh, Eric preached on the first few verses of this thank you section last week, and Paul opens by saying, um, I don't really need what you gave me, right? I have everything I need. That's not typically how a missionary responds to his or her donors. I don't really need what you've got. I've got everything I need. He goes on to say, um, at last you renewed your concern for me. That would be pretty offensive to like somebody with deep pockets who you were trying to court as a continual donor, right? At last you renewed your concern for me. There's no groveling. There's actually, a, I mean, like comparatively little gratitude in what Paul is saying here. He doesn't, he doesn't appear to be beholden to them in any manner. And he even goes on to say, not that I even want your gifts for my own use. I don't even want the stuff you tried to give me. I don't, that's not what's important to me, he says. Now, if any of, any of you guys, uh, you folks, you guys or gals who are in the development world tried speaking to your donors this way, I don't think it would probably go very well. Or any of you who tend to get hit up by, hit up, that's a terrible way to say it. <laughs> we'll talk, we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, who get asks. Is that the right word? Who get uh, approached to become partners. Many of you would turn somebody away cold if they said, I don't need anything from you. I don't even want what you have. And you're not all that concerned for me. But thanks anyways. Right? You'd probably turn them away cold. Paul is clearly interacting with money in a very different way than the rest of us. He clearly has a different approach To money, it's out of accord with our view of money. I think, uh, and I know that God, through his word, wants to confront us this morning on how we view money. I should say also that I know that I'm a dude who lives off of other people's money, so to speak, right? So you're going to have to work really hard to put down your cynicism to hear this from me. I'm just going to be honest about that. It would be easy for you to say, here's a guy trying to get more money out of us, or whatever, whatever your cynical view may be. This is God's word. I didn't make this up, okay? Three points today. 
the secret, the secretly sacred, profaning the sacred, and finally responding to profanity. The secretly sacred, profaning the sacred, and responding to profanity. First, the secretly sacred. A sacred thing is something that has power beyond its apparent use. Right? That's pretty evident. That's not a surprising definition. A sacred thing is something that has power in it that is beyond what it apparently is used for. A piece of wood has power. You can prop something up with it, right, and stack things on top of it. It's got power to hold things. It also has power to burn. When you burn it, it releases its power. It releases its energy and makes flame. That's its apparent use. That's its obvious and typical use. But do you know there are so many chunks of wood floating around in the Middle Ages that somebody kind of added them all up and said, if every chunk of wood that is claimed to be a piece of the original cross of Christ was actually assembled, it would make a cross well over 200 feet tall. That's a chunk of wood that is considered sacred, right? There's all these chunks of wood floating around. They're not for burning. They're not for stacking. There's something sacred about it. Each, uh, many, many churches had, uh, believed they needed to have some sacred object in the Middle Ages to kind of um, affirm their existence as a church. And so these sacred objects had power beyond their typical use. They had some power to, to assure this church that it should be there. It had some, some power to, to infuse authority to this, uh, this congregation, this uh, community. It had some power to bro- provide provision or good luck or whatever you want to call it for this community. It had some sacred power. And how are those things dealt with, do you think? Sacred objects. How do you think they interacted with them? Many of them would boast about them, right? We're the church that has X object, whatever it is. When, there's, when you have something sacred, you boast about it. You tell other people about it. You want to show off, you want to flaunt your, your, your power, your authority. Or, or it's very secretive. Because that power is, is unpredictable. It's fragile. It's, it, other people want it. It's an envied power. And so you, you treat it very secretly. Now that may seem kind of foolish to us because we don't, you know, we're modern and we're, we're Americans and we live kind of post-enlightenment where we found out that science has an answer for everything. And so that like, you know, there's no sacred power in this podium. It's just some wood. And there's no sacred power in this room, in this building. It's just a place where people meet. And we think we're very clever about that. But can you think... I think if we consider hard, we would come up with some things in our lives that we attri- to which we attribute power beyond their typical use. Can you think of things, here's another way of getting at it, can you think of something that in our culture today is, is either boasted about or held in secret? I think that the sacred objects, can you turn this down just a bit, Nathan? Thanks, man. I think the sacred objects in our culture today are money and bodies. Money and bodies are the sacred objects. Think about, um, think about health and sex and what a big deal those are in our, in our, um, in our culture. 
It's either boasted about, you either flaunt it, or you hide it. But more pertinent for our, for our topic and for this passage is money. Think about how many of your friends, how, how much do you know of their financial situation? You either know exactly how much that boat cost that they just bought, right? Because they're going to talk about it. Because I've got money. And money is power. And money is, is, is uh, security. And it's, you know, you're going to know how much, how much they've got or what, what they're doing with it. Or you're not going to know anything. You're going to know nothing. How they're doing, if they're struggling, if they're doing really well, if they feel content, you're not going to know. Because it's the secret and sacred thing. Money is a sacred power to us. Here's another way to, to, to get at this. If you're not convinced that money, that we treat money as a sacred power, as, a, as, a, as an object that has power beyond its typical use. You can track over time the popularity of certain Google searches. And they'll put them on a graph for you. And, you know, you'll see what, you know, the search for a certain, you know, baseball team. And when they get in the World Series, that search goes way up, right? That kind of thing. So there's one search... That is, that is pretty flatline, pretty, pretty standard for years and years. And then in October of 2008, this search jumped way up. And it stayed up for months and months. And then finally, March of 2009, it started to come back down. And then it flatlined back where it typically levels out. You know what that search was? Suicide methods. Do you know why that time frame? The stock market crash of 2008. Apparently in our world, money is more sacred than the body. You see, people weren't just mad that, that they couldn't buy a boat or that they, or that they weren't sure uh, you know, if they were going to pay their mortgage. That's a big deal. But something bigger is, is going on there. Something we are attributing to money, this power, this, this, this authority, to provide, that goes beyond its typical use. To provide, to give us power, to give us security. But I have never contemplated suicide over my financial status. Ever. So I probably, I have just like a much more kind of simple view of money. And probably more holy than you. (laughs) Why do you think that's funny? I just want, I want simple things. I want a little room in my budget. I'm happy to pay my mortgage and gas bill and all that stuff. I just want a little bit of room in my budget. Because then I'll be able to buy the right clothes. You know what that, you know, you want to just be able to buy just the right ones. Because they fit you right. If you go to that, you know, if you go to Gap, nothing's going to fit. And you just know that. But if you go to something a little nicer, you're going to get something that fits. And then you spend just a little bit more money, you get something that fits. And then you just feel, you feel confident, right? You feel much better going out in your world. But if you're more confident, man, I want that money. Buy those clothes, make me a little more confident. And then when I'm more confident, when I look really good, I think people listen to me more. Don't you think? They'll pay attention to me. I'll have more influence on their lives if I look a little better. I don't want much from like $200, just some clothes. I don't want much from money. Just power. 
over other humans? <laughs> not that much. I'm just, I'm not asking much for money. I never try to kill myself. You know what else I want? I want to go on a date with my wife and not worry about the money. I want to pay a babysitter. Boom. There's your cash. I'm going to even pay, pay you more than you ask. Like, I want to pay that babysitter, not even think about it. I want to go to, lunch, go to dinner. Maybe I'll get a cocktail. Maybe I'll get an appetizer. Both in one meal. I'm just <laughs> throwing it out there. Introducing those folks to some dead presidents. Here we go. Man, I'm loving it. If I'm feeling really, really good about this, we're going to Clumpy's afterwards. Because I love that place. Even still. Sorry, Marshall not better than it was. It's still good. Marshall started clumpies, just so you know. All right. I don't want, but that's, you know, that's not that much to ask from a hundred bucks or whatever, a hundred and fifty, whatever it is. I don't know if it's Courtney babysitting, maybe more than a hundred bucks. She's expensive. (laughs) I don't want that much from a hundred bucks. I just want a nice night with my wife. I just want her to be happy with me. Right? I just want my wife to enjoy being with me. And then she feels good about our relationship. And then she thinks, was I actually am glad that I married that guy, Corby. <laughs> and then she can tell me and she expresses that to me, that she's happy and that she likes me. And that the person that I'm closest to in this world likes me. And she affirms my existence in this world. I don't want that much from a hundred bucks. Just an affirmation of my existence. It's not that much. I never tried. I've never killed anybody over money. You know, just a little bit less than that, though. Like a tiny bit of money every month. I just want for my little treats. Like I want a nice chocolate bar. Like I, I want not a Hershey's. Don't give me that. It tastes like wax. Give me something good, like a $3.50 chocolate bar. If I'm feeling really good about myself, that's what I want. I bought a Whirly Pop the other day. Do y'all know what those are? You put them on and you, you can pop popcorn. Cause I, oh, yes. This is what, yeah. It's not just popcorn. You don't just put the oil in, right? John Michael knows. They brought good popcorn to a party once. You don't just put the oil in and, and, and the kernels. You have to pop the popcorn. You have to make it just right. You have to follow the recipe. And I make this great kettle corn that I only eat after the kids are in bed. (laughs) And I love it. Just little things. Just little. I just want enough to buy my Whirly Pop. A little bit of oil. I just want a nice chocolate bar. And enough to buy, like, a good book. I just like to have a good book before I go to bed. I like to read a good book. I like to have a movie on hand in case there's something and like Rachel goes out for a night and I put the kids down. I, I got to have a movie to watch, right? I couldn't, couldn't be bored. You know, I want these little things, just these little things, just $25 a month or so, just for these little treats, just to make sure I know that I'm giving myself these little treats, that I'm worth it, that I'm, I am worth a $3.50 chocolate bar. You know, I am so important that I deserve my own personal little court jesters who come at my beck and call when I, get, when I want that movie, when I want to be entertained, I don't want to be bored, and there they are because I'm worth that. I'm not asking much from $25. Just, 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 just enough to tell me that I matter. 
that I'm important, that I'm a big deal. None of us escapes this sacred view of money. None of us escapes the fact that we put into money so much more than its typical use, than its apparent use. We are people who... I'm going to back up. We are people who view money as sacred, as having that kind of power. So we talk about the secretly sacred. It's not something we acknowledge very often. Secondly, profaning the sacred. Eric has used this quote before, and I really liked it. Um, it's from Jacques Ellul. There is, uh, there is one act par excellence, which pro- par excellence, he's French, par excellence, which profanes money by going directly against the law of money, an act for which money is not made. This act is giving. See what he says? Money is made for spending. Money is made and we give it sacred power when we want the things that it can buy, when we think it can give us more. He says we profane money. We make it not sacred anymore when we give it away. In this passage, we're told Paul helps us to see um, and, and, and indirectly commands us to detach ourselves from money, from the secret powers of money. Notice how Paul distances himself from this, from the Philippians' money. And then he goes on to distance the Philippians from their money. He won't put it right up next to each other. He doesn't grovel and say, thank you for your provision for me. The money that you sent has made me happy and secure and fine. He doesn't do that. He calls their gift a fragrant offering. and A sacrifice pleasing and acceptable before God. They haven't given to him. They've given to God. They haven't fixed Paul's difficulties. They haven't rescued him. They haven't even provided for him or paid him. They have given to God. Their money went straight to God. This is the same language, this this language of sacrifice that Paul uses of his own own labors in uh, chapter 2, verse 17 of of this book, Philippians. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He says, when you give, when you give your money away, that's sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, of God's good news going out to the ends of the earth. And when I serve and I plant churches and I do all the things that I'm doing, that is a sacrifice given to God. He's distancing himself from their money. It's like scrap steel. Their money's like scrap steel that enters the machine and comes out as something totally different. It's not scrap steel anymore. Right? Paul said, I did not receive your scrap steel. That wasn't what was happening. You gave that money to God. And it's a sacrifice. When money passes into and through God's hands, it's transformed. It's an indirect connection between the Philippians and their money and Paul and the payment for his labors. He speaks of their gift as a means of partnering in ministry. He doesn't speak of it as his provision or his rescue. He says it's a sacrifice to God and it's taking on the troubles of the spreading of the gospel. Then he says, um, then he goes on to say, he doesn't even want their money or what it can buy. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He detaches himself from their money. 
You see, givers and goers alike must be detached from the sacredness of money. Paul doesn't want their money to infect what he does, what his labors are. He doesn't want them believing that they have the sacred power of money over him, that their money will give them influence over him. So money, to be profaned, not only has to be given, it has to be sacrificed. See, a sacrifice... Paul is using this Old Testament language of sacrifice, and a sacrifice, in essence, is a waste. It's a waste of the typical uses of an object. So in the Old Testament, you take an animal, an animal that could be used for labor and agriculture, or at least for food, and then you burn it up, and it's gone. There's no more labor, no more food. Its typical use has been destroyed. Or Paul says a drink offering. When, he, when you take a drink offering, you pour it out. That's perfectly good wine. It can make the heart glad. But then it's on the ground, seeping into the dirt. It's poured out. It's a, it's a waste. That's what a sacrifice is. There are two types of sacrificial giving. The first is among the religious. You see, religious people want to give want to give and, and, and maintain the authority over the thing they gave. Right? A religious person wants to, to, to make deposits into God's blessing bank so that he can withdraw at a later point. A religious person gives still expecting their money to, to maintain sacred power. Either they give it and, and, and demand and expect God to bless them in return, or they give it to, a, to some missionary or whoever, some, some ministry or some nonprofit, and expect to have authority and influence and power there. You see, they haven't been detached from the sacred power of money. <clears throat> the other type gives us a sacrifice that's a gift. We have these great friends. Rachel and I have these great friends um, who went to school with Rachel at Wake Forest, Demon Deeks. And, um, and, uh, and we've maintained, uh, we've, we've stayed in touch with them. They're friends of Rachel's in that same friend group. And they, they, those two got married, Hunter and Adrian. And, uh, and we see them from time to time. And especially when we first got out of college, Hunter got this great job as a consultant. And he was making sick cash, like tons of it. And we would go visit them and like roll in on fumes because we did not have lots of cash. Like that was, we did not know how we were going to drive back to Philadelphia because that was the gas budget for the month to drive to Virginia to see them. And, and so we were, we're not doing well, not that we, well, we kept it secret because money is sacred. But, but Hunter didn't. You see, Hunter profaned money. He didn't keep it secret. And he didn't boast about it. We would go out to eat and he'd say, no, 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 you're not paying. i say, Hunter, you can't do that because that's embarrassing, Right. You're using the sacred power of money against me to show me that you have authority and I do not because you have money. No, no, no. That's why I don't let people pay the bill, right? Hunter said, no, you can't pay. You know what? The world, for some reason, has decided that, that my skills are worth lots of money. But the world has decided that the skills and gifts that you have, though they are every bit as valuable as mine, is not worth lots of money. That doesn't make sense, so I'm going to even the balance, and I'm paying tonight. You're not going to pay for anything while you're with us. He wasn't boasting about it. He wasn't keeping it a secret. It was, it was given away. That was a waste of money. That money went into my belly. 
or my gas tank or whatever it was. He didn't get any benefit from it. You see, that's a gift that's a sacrifice that detaches from the sacred power of money. You see, the only way for giving, to be giving like that, for sacrifice to be a waste and not maintain the the sacred power of money is if it's a sacrifice of response. I asked Hank, and he told me I could tell this story today. A number of years ago, probably five years ago or so, we lived in, uh, outside of Philadelphia, and I was out on the porch. Hank was about five years old, Reese was three, and Barnes was just a little baby. And I was out on the porch working on something. I think I was painting uh, some part of the porch. And Hank was out there kind of just toddling around, playing on our little baby jogger stroller that was parked on the front porch. And, it, and he was just kind of up and down all over. We were kind of chatting as he was playing, and I was painting. My back was to him. And at one point, he says, Daddy, my finger's stuck. I just keep painting. Well, pull it out, son. Keep going there. And then lay a little, he's, he doesn't say anything about it. A little later, he goes, Daddy, I'm still stuck. I said, well, pull a little harder. You'll be all right. I mean, I just didn't think anything of it. But, and then, I mean, some minutes pass before I finally turn around. And I see Hank, like, crouched in the, um, in the baby jogger like this. <laughs> Dad, I'm still stuck. I was like, what are you doing? And there is this little foot plate that kids could, you know, when the kids sit in, they could put their foot on this, on this tooth, kind of like a two-foot-long metal plate with tiny little holes in it, like holes just big enough for the finger of a little kid. And, um, and it was a double jogger, so it was like double wide. And so he's sitting there, like kind of upside down, stuck with his finger in there. And I was like, it's all right, we'll get it out. I'll work on it, work on it, can't get it out. Finally, I was like, okay, I, I mean, I'm not getting this. I guess, you know, we tried everything. I guess we're going to the hospital. We're going to have to go to the hospital. Well, how do you get a kid attached to a baby jogger in a car? <laughs> so I go and get my tools. I run to the basement, get my tools, and I just like use a ratchet to get off. And, but then luckily, like three of those bolts were rusted on, so I had to get the sawzall. And I'm sitting there like sawzall, by Hank's finger, and he's just whimpering. But he trusted me, he trusted me. So we got it off. And then Hank is walking to the car with this two-foot like piece of metal on his hand, and I'm getting him in there, and he stops, he says, wait, my buddy! And buddy, you have to know, is the sacred object in our house. Buddy has the power to stop tears. Buddy has the power to relieve the pain of a skinned knee. And Buddy has the power to calm a young man who is stuck to a two-foot piece of iron, or whatever it was, steel. Buddy is their blanket. All my kids have this little blanket that they sleep with and they cuddle with for, from forever. And so Buddy, he had to have Buddy. Okay, we get Buddy. We take Buddy, put, put Hank and Buddy in my car. We drive to the hospital. We get there. Long story short, the... Um, they rush us through. There's people like in labor and like broken femurs and like third degree burn. We get in first because we got this cute kid stuck to a, to a big metal thing. So we're in there and we got like four nurses in there because they're all concerned about cute little Hank. And Hank's there and I'm trying to distract him. And here, but Hank, look at this book. And he's, a, he's like looking at the book and the doctor's working on his finger and kind of gives him some shots to numb it. And then he's working it, working it. And, uh, and then finally I'm reading the book and the boop, it comes out. I said... Hank, take a look. And he looks around and goes, Oh, I am so thankful. Oh, I am so thankful to God, Dad. And I was like, Yeah, that's right. Pastor's kid, I'm doing it. That's good. You hear that, nurses? 
we go to New Life Treasure, you should check it out. No. So I'm all proud of him. Oh, I'm so thankful to God. This is wonderful. I said, I agree, Hank. This is great. He goes, I'm so thankful. I want, I want to give God a sacrifice. I said, ah, Hank, no. And then I turned to the nurses. We're not freaks like that. I, know what the, I want to give God a sacrifice. Dad, I, I want to burn up my buddy to God. I said, you don't have to burn up your buddy to God, Hank. Hank wanted, we did not burn up buddy to God. We, Hank wanted to give his sacred object and waste it. He wanted to waste it. It would be gone. There would be no more comfort for skin knees from buddy. There would be no more comfort for tears from buddy. He wanted to give it gone, all the way gone to God. No authority, no influence, no sacred power left in buddy. That, that is giving as Paul envisions it here. That is giving, that is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to our God. Now what would happen, Hank gets stuck to the thing, we're there, we go, okay, get it off, saws off, we're gone. All right, we're getting in the car. Hank stops, my buddy. And daddy says, Hank, I got a great idea. Let's burn up your buddy to God. Let's do it now. Then maybe he'll listen to us. Then then he'll give us what we want. Right? Right? You see, a sacrifice given in that manner is just manipulation. It's just a power play. It's not parting with the sacred power of the thing offered. It's not wasting. You see, you and I will never give that way. We will never profane our money unless we know the one who profaned the most sacred object ever to exist on this earth. You see, Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy God-man, took the most sacred and powerful object ever known on this earth or all of creation and wasted it. He profaned it as a sacrifice, pleasing to his Father. And he did it on your behalf. He did it because... We think money is sacred. He did it because you can't part with your money. He did it because you and I want to manipulate God out of His blessings with our sacrifices. Jesus offered Himself. He profaned His body so that you could be free from the sacred power of money. Now, what does this mean? It means that from now on, Paul can say to you and to me and to every one of us, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His riches and glory in Christ Jesus come from what Christ accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. And now he will provide all of our needs. This means when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've got this ministry that I'm doing or that I know of and I want you to support it, then your first responses don't have to be shame or disgust. Because you know what? That person is not coming to you and saying, hey, will you feed my kids? Hey, will you rescue me? 
They're not coming to you and saying, hey, would you like some authority and power in my life and in this life, in the life of this nonprofit? They're not doing that. What you can hear is, hey, would you waste your money in response to God's good sacrifice for you? Would you give it away? Would you burn it up? And then you just get to choose. You get to discern, is this where God would have me burn up my money? Is this where he would have me profane my money so I can be free of it? So that he can transform it like steel going into a mill that comes out as useful products. Is this where he would have me transform money? And for those of you who are in the development side, who are, who are developing partners in, uh, in ministry or in bus- or any of those things like Paul's doing in ministry, particularly or nonprofit world, you are not indebted to the people who give to you. Paul only calls the Philippians' gift a payment because he first calls it a sacrifice. It wouldn't be payment if it wasn't sacrifice. It would be power. The money would not be separated from the Philippians and he would be beholden to them. But he says, you joined in the troubles of the gospel when you gave money. I'm also in the troubles of the gospel. That money has been transformed when it passed through God's hands. From you, it was sacrificed to me. It's payment. It's not your payment to me. You're not beholden. There is no groveling. It frees you. It frees you to say, like Paul says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. That is, that your faith be built. That Jesus would draw you closer to himself. You see, we're all, um, we all of us are charity cases. We all live off the abundant generosity of our Father. Some people live off of it in the business sector. Some people live off of it in the private, in the ministry sector. We're all just charity cases. So it gives us great courage to talk to each other about money, neither to boast nor to hide it, but to be open with it and to offer it to our God for the benefit of others. Jesus' sacrifice is byproduct synergy. Into his, in, in went his body into his Father's hands. Out comes cleanness for us and provision. You are a product of his sacrifice. You, his new people. How will you profane, waste, and pour out your life and your money for him?